I'm Richard Dodd, and you're listening to the Ecology Academy podcast. This is a show where we get to talk and learn about all things ecological, including interviews with top ecologists, both employers and employees, those working with ecologists, and also aspiring and inspiring career-seeking individuals setting out to make a difference. The show aims to provide you with insights, advice, and inspiration to help you succeed and excel as an effective ecologist and to make a real difference to our natural environment. Hello and welcome to the Ecology Academy podcast. And on today's episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing on the other side of the table, uh, Mr. Neil Middleton. Now, Neil has substantial experience in business management, consultancy, people development, training, and the associated skills associated with running small, medium enterprise businesses. As well as being the owner and managing director of Batability Courses and Tuition, Neil also owns Time for Bespoke Solutions Limited. In the past, Neil was the founder and managing director at Echoes Ecology Limited. Now, he's designed and delivered over 400 training courses across a wide range of customer types and industry sectors, including training, workshops, courses, covering a variety of subjects to the Bat Conservation Trust national and regional conferences, as well as for Nature Scott, Northern Ireland Environment Agency, the National Trust, the National Trust for Scotland, Wildlife Acoustics USA, and over 100 ecological consultancies operating in the UK, Ireland, and further afield. He's also author or co-author of the following books, Social Cause of the Bats of Britain and Ireland, The Effective Ecologist, one of my favourites, Is That a Bat? And also Sound Identification of Terrestrial Mammals of Britain and Ireland. Now, most of his working days are currently filled with producing content for Batability Club members and the Talking, pa- uh, Talking Bat podcast channel, as well as providing technical support for Batability's online acoustic training course launched in 2021. So, Neil, welcome to the uh, podcast. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And as I say, I, I am look. I am. I'm genuinely looking forward to this conversation because um, we've spoken in the past about uh, different, uh, yeah, different, different, different areas, particularly about training and, and support there. But um, I, I'm so chuffed that you've agreed to come on to the podcast. We're going to talk about probably a lot to do with bats, a lot to do with training. <laughs> but yeah. let's talk about you to start off with. So in terms of, um, so um, tell us about yourself. For those who, the listener who doesn't know about you, where did you, you know, where are you based? And also, um, you know, how did you get to where you are now? Okay, well, first of all, Richard, I just want to say a massive thanks to you. And I'm chuffed a bit, so I'm really pleased to be talking with yourself this morning as well. Okay, so thank you for the invite. Uh, okay, a little bit about me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, started off life living in Aberdeen. Um, always had a fascination with natural history from as long as I can remember. I can remember my mum buying uh, a series of encyclopedias of science books that got delivered to our skyscraper every month, and I would pour through these books and, in particular would be very interested in anything to do with wildlife, you know, birds, mammals, whatever, uh, even worms, to the point that one day I got in the skyscraper lift with an earthworm that I'd found in a puddle uh, outside, and we got up to the fifth floor. I knocked on my mum's door, my house. My mum opened the door, and I said, Hi, mum, we're going to start a wormery. 
my mum screamed and sent me down the lift. <laughs> and this all came from one of those books that she bought from me. But anyway, yeah, progressed into high school. Um, Jean Birder from the age of about eight. I was a YOC member when they still had the Kestrel emblem that I proudly had patched on the side of my anorak. I, yeah, went through high school, kind of lost interest a little bit in birds uh, for a wee while, and then re-engaged with birding in my mid-twenties. Uh, what happened after that, I'd always been interested in mammals, and I was under threat of redundancy in my late twenties. And as a kid, I always wanted to be a zoologist. I lived in Aberdeen. Aberdeen had an amazing zoology department, but I was never smart enough to go to university back then. But I always wanted to be a zoologist. And I thought to myself, if this insurance company that I'm working for is going to make me redundant, I am going to change my life. I'm going to try and do something that I want to do. So at that point, registered on some uh, courses with the Field Studies Council from memory, all range of courses, included within which was a course on small mammals. Included within that was a day and an evening on bats, something that I was absolutely terrified of, had no interest about learning in at all because my previous engagement and only engagement with a bat was the North Norfolk coast whilst I was trying to watch some barn owls and this bat attacked me or at least that's what that's I thought at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I reluctantly went on that field studies course and I thought when it gets to the bat bit I'll just go to the toilet for a long time or yeah. something like that I don't know right anyway I left that course and I was just absolutely intrigued and amazed about uh, not just all the other stuff on the course, but in particular bats. Everything I thought I knew about bats turned out to be rubbish. And that was the beginning, I suppose, of what would be my bat journey. Yeah, so long answer to a short question, but... No, no, it's great. So in, in terms of that Field Studies Council course then, Neil, so um, yeah. sort of just putting a time frame on there, so what what year roughly was it that you oh, obtained, you know, went goodness. on? Was uh, it in the 90s? 1990s, yeah. probably, probably around about 92, 93, 94, yeah. something like that. I seem to remember I bought my first bat detector From memory, I bought my very first bat detector. I think it was 95 or 96. That Field Studies Council would have been at least a year, maybe two years before that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Um, yeah, if that contradicts something I've said in another podcast or webinar somewhere, folks, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, but... Uh, well, yeah. you know, sometimes, sometimes <laughs> you know, time it can be a bit blurred. I know that. So, yeah. uh, no, I totally resonate with the, the fact that, uh, you know, say, uh, you know, you know how things how people get into whenever they're studying really and uh, it can be through a, a a misassociation so yeah in terms of uh, I, I think I, I too was I probably had an encounter with a bat at some point which uh, yeah scared the life out of me um but um no it's, that's really interesting so in terms of going from the that course then so obviously there was something that either the tutor or within clearly within yourself as well that it lighted this fire uh, in terms of mammals and um, in, and, and obviously bats. So where did you take it from there then? So you bought in a detector a couple of years later. Uh, and so, um, I mean, how did you get into becoming into more involved with 
bat work, shall we say? Yeah, well, look, it was it was very. I don't know what the expression is. Organic. None, none of it was uh, planned. I was as it happened. I never got made redundant at that point from the insurance company. I went on to be with that insurance company until 2006. So I had another 10 years of an insurance career in front of me at that point. And, um, and you know, birding was very much my first passion when it came to natural history. Uh, mammals, uh, in particular cetaceans, I was very interested in. Um, anything to do with land-based mammals, I was reasonably interested in. And I suppose after that course, I no longer had a fear of bats and I had more of an appreciation of what they actually were as opposed to what me and at that point in time, probably 99% of the general public thought they were. And and it was just a gradual thing. Um, I, some time after that, I joined a local bat group. The very first bat group I joined was Central Scotland Bat Group. Uh, around about that same time, I went on my very first bat course, uh, which was in the Flatford Mill. It was another Field Studies Council course. And that was an excellent course. That was purely bats and a learned so much there, learned, learned so much there. And I think by that point, which is probably around about 95, 96, by that point, I'm beginning to feel that I'm really interested in bats. I'm using my bat detector a lot, uh, an old Heterodyne uh, bat box too, I think was my first bat detector. Um, I'm beginning to go to more bat, bat group meetings. I'm beginning to go to conferences because back then we didn't have regional conferences, we only had the National Bat Conference. I'm beginning to go on a lot more training courses with lots of really good people um, and just gradually, you know, building up my experience um, through the mid to late 90s, I suppose, into the early 2000s. And by the time we get to round about uh, 2000, well, by the time we get to 2000, I had been a member of three different back groups in the central belt of Scotland because I'd moved house a few times. And just before the year 2000, uh, there was this project occurring in the central belt, which was all to do with connecting uh, and canals that were created during the Industrial Revolution, reconnecting these canals to allow uh, water traffic, in effect, to, if they wanted to, uh, go from the, the North Sea right through into the Clyde Estuary, um, if, if you wanted to do that. But a lot of it was to do with canal, uh, canal barges being able to navigate across the entirety of the, the width of Scotland at that point. And this was a project that British Waterways, as it was called back then, called the Millennium Link. And I had I lived in a house that was about, what, 500 metres from one of these canals. And I was quite interested in De Benton's bats anyway at that point. And, it, and round about 1999, 2000, uh, that's when... Uh, myself and a couple of uh, friends launched a project called the Bats and the Millennium Link Project. Now, that started off as a very small project trying to monitor how the Benton's bats 
would be impacted positively or negatively through the reopening of these canal channels. And by the time we get to 2005, 2006, we'd engaged with something like 120 plus volunteers on that project. And we had, we did, we did presentations at back conferences about the project outputs, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but I was still working for the insurance company, mm-hmm. still working for the insurance company mm-hmm. until, uh, but I suppose that was when I was getting quite geeky about my sound identification, um, about, I mean, I, I sometimes describe myself as a researcher, but I can always feel a bit of a, uh, a cheat calling myself a researcher because I think when people think of researchers they're thinking about academic research okay um, of which there are many many amazing academic type researchers in the bat world I've never been to university I'm not an academic you know I've just anything I've learned I've either learned through my own trial and error through reading books through attending lots of courses and lots of workshops through many, many years. Um, but I'm not a trained academic, mm. you know, it's, you know, so that's why, you know, when I use the term in some respects, research to describe myself or have myself described by others, I kind of think, mm, you know, yeah, I kind of am a researcher, but I'm not at the same level as, you know, you know, yeah, yeah. I don't, so, I don't want so, to mention names because if I mention somebody's yeah. name, then somebody you'll else miss someone out. Yeah. That didn't mention their name <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But you know, well, yeah. what's a curiosity, isn't it? So I think that's what it is. Yeah. It's just, you know, I mean, obviously, yeah. Dorbenton's bats. So you know, I know a little bit about bat calls, but uh, you know, in terms of um, you know, because they, you know, we can recognise certain calls, but Dorbenton's got. Was it because particularly they were either difficult to um, identify, or was it just that that you know you wanted to look at the the characteristics of the calls or was it actually the, the animal itself that was intriguing? I, I think it was the animal itself. I think you've also got to bear in mind that I'm sitting at that point in the central belt of Scotland uh, and at that point um, Soprano Pipistrelle had only very recently been uh, categorised as a separate species. Mm-hmm. So an awful lot of our bat records throughout the United Kingdom uh, and and Ireland as well, I would imagine, and Northern Ireland were all just categorised as Pipistrellus Pipistrellus because up until around about that time, Pipistrellus pygmaeus, I mean, obviously it existed, it just didn't exist from a human perspective. Um, so I'm sitting in the centre of Scotland and what have I got to get really interested in, in terms of bats? I've got Pipistrellus Pipistrellus which at the beginning of my bat life was just one species. I've got Debentons. I've got long-eared bats that you very rarely record on a recording device. Um, what else did I have? You know, outside chance of Natura's bat, mm-hmm. um, but very outside chance of that. We had no big bats this far north in Scotland back then. Uh, we didn't know what we know about whiskered bats uh, in Scotland, you know, back then you know uh, so pretty much i really just had three species to choose from Uh, i think am i missing something out there um no and uh, run long eared that was going to be an awful lot of uh that was going to end in tears unless the new forests were 
and Pippa Strellis, Pippa Strellis were everywhere. So the Bentons yes, to me yes. was always the intriguing species. The, yeah. yeah, it was just always the one, and it's probably the one that still, when people ask me to this mm-hmm. day, what's your favourite bat? Yeah. And listen, I'm sorry, folks <laughs> out there, but a lot of people go for you know Barbastel or Becksteins or Alcathos, Whiskered Bat or whatever. Yeah, I totally get all that, but hey. Yeah. You know, my favourite bat's the Benton's bat. It's the bat that I've had most engagement with. It's the bat that I've handled most. It's the bat that I've researched in inverted commas most. Mm-hmm. It's the bat that I've radio tagged most, ringed most, you know, etc., etc. You know. Um, okay. Well, so you know, so going on from this, um, the Millennium Link project, then, and yeah. um, I mean, you mentioned, you know, mentioned in the introduction that you set up as managing director of Echoes Ecology Limited. So yeah. uh, was that? I mean, it, it may have been a natural progression, but um, when did that start to form in your mind that and actually like to you know form a company or you know it prog- progresses professionally then rather than just you know we say just you know um, looking at it as a volunteer. Yeah, okay. So the Millennium Link project was going really well. It was nationally recognised. A Bat Conservation Trust, for example, it put in a, quite a bit of uh, you know moral support for that project. Um, and in early 2006, um, the insurance company I worked for had another round of redundancies. Now, by this point, I was fairly senior. And I'd been with that insurance company for, what, 24, almost 25 years at that point. So truth be told, if I was able to get a redundancy package, I was going to get a sizable package, yeah. Um, For that insurance company, uh, the last two to three years of my life working for that company, I didn't actually do insurance for that company. I did business consultancy work for that company whereby we went out to that company's customers as trained business consultants, a very small number of us, and we would try and help our insurance broker customers to think about their business and how they manage their business and certain aspects of what was going on in the insurance marketplace back then in a different way. So in effect, this insurance company turned me into a trained business consultant. And also during that period and a couple of years prior to that period, I was also uh, one of the uh, non-professional trainers in the company that the company used for actually training, doing internal training courses. So in effect, I had a, what do you call it? I had a cottage industry within this big corporate whereby uh, I was also doing training of staff, not just in insurance-related products, but in business skills-related products and stuff. Anyway, 2006 comes, opportunity for redundancy. Uh, Long story short, I managed to get myself made redundant, okay? That's what I wanted to do. And the intention wasn't to do that with a view to becoming a bad consultant. The intention was to do that with setting up a small, uh, business consultancy, business skills training company, and that is Time for Bespoke Solutions. Yeah. Now, during that three months of gardening leave, um, whilst all of this was coming together, uh, I was aware that now and again I would get asked to do consultancy bat work, and I had just walked away from a big job with a company house, sorry, a company car, etc. And 
in effect, come the 1st of April 2006, I had no salary. Yeah. Mm. So if somebody was going to pay me to do some bat service, I would have been an idiot to say no to that. So I went to my accountant, well, who became my accountant, with two business ideas. The first business, which is what I was leaving the insurance company to do, was the business consultancy company. Uh, Talked it through with the accountant. The accountant got it all set up uh, as a limited company, etc., uh, etc. Et and then I told the accountant about the bat stroke because I could also do bird work as well. The bat stroke bird stuff. And the accountant told me, uh, long story short, Neil, forget all about that. Just focus on one thing. Uh, this second idea doesn't sound like a good idea to me. Yeah. Now, you also got to bear in mind in 2006 in Scotland, there weren't that many uh, ecological specialist bat consultancies. Okay. I could probably name the five individuals, mm. individuals slash companies that were in the entirety of Scotland uh, doing uh, bat related work as a small individual uh, business, ignoring corporates and stuff. So anyway, uh, I accepted what the accountant said. I accepted that being a bat consultant or however you want to badge that, I accepted that was a rubbish idea. And I walked out of the room, uh, the proud owner of this new business, Time for Bespoke Solutions. Yeah. Uh, five days later, um, I won't say the name of the company, but a company phoned me up and said, we want you to do some bat service for trees. Are you allowed to do that now that you've left Norwich Union? Uh, and I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not barred from doing it, but I don't have a vehicle in which to invoice you. I don't have insurance, I don't have a bank account. And quite frankly, the guy said to me, I've got a one and a half thousand pound budget for this job, Neil. It's yours if you want it. And I said, I'll phone you back. And I lifted up the phone to my accountant and I said, Jim, remember this idea for eco-psychology? He said, Neil, it's a load of rubbish. Don't touch it. I'm going, Jim, somebody is in the process of writing me a cheque for one and a half thousand pounds. And he said, ah, OK, we better get that company set up. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> and that's kind of how it's that's kind of how it all started. So I did always envisage, envisage doing some bat-related uh, income, but on day one, I didn't envisage that it was going to be more than just me or me and a couple of part-time surveyors um, you know, doing occasional bat surveys, occasional bird work, because I knew, well, I felt I knew quite a lot about bird ID and stuff. If you'd asked me on the 1st of April 2006, where would the echoes go? I could never have imagined uh, the the organic, evolutionary, accidental, by coincidence, uh, sometimes by design, sometimes by grasping opportunities, uh, things that were going to occur after that point in time. I could never have imagined it was never it was never contrived. It was never, it was never planned to be, you know, a business which at one point had fourteen members of staff, its own premises, its own business vehicles. You know, on day one, that would have scared the socks off of me. You know, I, I would have just said I am not capable of the bat bit. I was probably okay with, uh, but managing people, 
you know, and all this kind of stuff. I don't know. You know, I'm sorry I'm going to upset anybody here, but uh, me in 2006, uh, I would have viewed people uh, possibly as things that got in the way of a well-performed task. Okay, I was very task-orientated when I was in the insurance company. I wasn't really a people person. I think I have changed considerably over the last 18, 19, 20 years, whatever it is. But yeah, me in 2006, if you'd said you want to manage a a team of 10 people, I would have said that is the last thing I want to do. Yeah. It, it's it, uh, it is strange yeah. how things do just turn out, isn't it? That uh, you know we know yeah. we go in with one intent, and it comes. You know, it just as as time goes on, you don't realise that you're actually getting more involved with uh, either the yeah. work because the work's interesting. You want to do more of it, therefore, to do more of it, you need more people to help you out. And yes, you can rely upon yeah. subcontractors, but you know, if you wanted that bit of obviously your business background, then goes, oh, do you know what? We, we need a team, you know, to keep costs down or increase profitability. Let's get some more people in, and that, I suppose you just, as you say, organically grows uh, from there. So, obviously, you, from that business background, that helps you then set up, um, you know, Echoes um, Ecology, and obviously, yeah. you know, your your time for bespoke solutions. Um, uh, company as well um yeah. uh, you know i'm need to uh, cut cut you short on this now itself but okay so in terms of um, okay your development as a a, a managing director you know of the, the companies how did that then move you onwards i mean we're heading towards now the training side of what you do so how did that yeah. propel you or uh, prepare you for uh, actually getting involved of helping others become you know, um, you know, uh, competent um, individuals. Yeah. Well, first of all, bear in mind that uh, for a good five years before I'd left Norwich Union, I was already a trainer, and I'd been trained internally uh, by Norwich Union in uh, training people and presentation skills and stuff like this. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say I was very good at certain aspects of that, but I was learning through experience over that five years. And and the and a big part of the time for Bespoke Solutions was to be a training company on the back of that experiences that I'd, that I'd had, and when Echoes, or even before Echoes and Time Four had got set up, uh, the Bats and the Millennium Link had delivered uh, quite a few uh, training courses on bat-related activities, um, so people are. We were doing bat-related training through the BATML project in 2001, 2002, 2003. Some big courses, uh, uh, people coming from all over the UK and beyond to be on those courses. Because back then, uh, Bat Conservation Trust, for example, uh, wasn't really doing too much of this stuff. You know, it's not like what it was today. I mean, there were there were a couple of organisations maybe in the UK that was doing this kind of stuff, and we were certainly one of those. Um, so, when Echoes started, uh, right from word go, Echoes, as well as being an ecological consultancy, which on day one focused on bats and birds, but right from day one with Echoes, Echoes was always going to have a training side to it because that's, as much as I've said earlier that I wasn't really a people person, uh, by that I mean managing people and working with people in a team environment. But from the point of view of seeking to help people and share my knowledge on whatever it is 
with people to the best that I could. Uh, that was something that was very much in my bones from, uh, you know, number a number of years before Echoes was, uh, you know, born, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, because that's you know that links into I suppose one of my next uh, sort of questions for you then, Neil. Is um, so you, you mentioned about um, you know obviously that. Um, Okay, not necessarily enjoying, but having to manage people themselves. Yeah. But that spark. So, what is it about training that you really enjoy? What aspect of it of that is it? Is it delivery? Is it actually, or is it is it actually you know uh, actually higher than that in terms of? Uh, I think you've alluded to the fact that uh, maybe transformative development of other people. Yeah, I think I could. Right. So, first thing that probably surprise many people is the worst thing about training when I was doing this in the early years, not just in the insurance company, but also in Echoes as well. The worst thing about training I always found was the delivery because prior to any training event, I would get myself in quite a state mentally about uh, first of all, is everything going to go right? You know, is everything that we've planned to do going to go to plan? And if it doesn't go to plan, we would have alternative plans. Uh, secondly, that thing that many people get about public speaking is just a genuine um, lack of confidence in myself that even though I'd been on my feet many times before, uh, you never know what's going to happen the next time. What happens if it's a bad audience? What happens if you have a bad day at the beginning of presentation one? What happens if you forget what you're talking about? All this kind of very, very normal stuff that I think any normal human being would go through in delivering any sort of presentation or public speaking face to face to people. I used to suffer a lot from that. I And that was probably the, the, the biggest thing, right? Uh, for me to get over. Mm. I would now say that today, this is many years later, it's the delivery part of it is the thing that I actually enjoy the most. <laughs> I, I know, and that's probably quite scary. And yes, before I do any webinar, before I did this interview today with you, Richard, yeah, I have a little bit of kind of niggling self-doubt in the back of my mind, but, but I've done it so many times that it doesn't impact. I don't lose a night's sleep over it anymore. Okay, it's, I'm not impacted by. It. So what? What do I? What did I enjoy about it back then? Um, I suppose there are two angles to it. The first angle is the obvious one, and that is, if you feel that you've got something within you that others would benefit from knowing, at no matter at what level you are at, um. For me, there is an enjoyment in kind of forewarning people not to make mistakes that I and other people have made ourselves in the past. There is a satisfaction from taking people that maybe know nothing or not that much about a subject and seeing them grow as an individual, not just during a training event, but over, but over months and years after that. And yeah, so I just I, I just didn't enjoy. I don't know if enjoy would be the right word. I get a lot of satisfaction out of trying to share 
the benefit of my knowledge or my lack of knowledge, uh, my experiences or my challenges and my failures uh, with other people. Uh, so that is kind of the obvious answer. There is a less obvious answer as well, however, where if you're a trainer or a people development person or however you want to view how you would describe that situation, you actually develop internally as a person yourself because you set up a course. There will be aspects of that course, for argument's sake, where maybe you don't know that much about that particular aspect of the course. So that means you've got to go away and do some personal research, personal self-development, uh, come up with ways of getting that message across because you've never done it before. You've then got to think about, right, well, how am I going to put that across? You know, is it going to be a flowchart? Is it going to be a practical exercise? Whatever. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've just asked you a question and uh, you do a lot of this stuff yourself, Richard. I mean, what do you get out of doing it? What, what's your feelings on when you're delivering this kind of material? Yeah, well, it was, it's actually, listening to yourself, you know, it, it's, it just, I mean, using your terms, you know, it echoes back in terms of, um, you know, why do we do it? Yes, it's about helping other people. I mean, I, I, get, I get a lot out of that and seeing people grow and develop. develop. But absolutely resonate with yourself about um, that also. What do I get out of it right in that instance or even before that? And it is that curiosity, finding out information. I want to find out. I want to learn. I want to develop. And the best way I can do that is finding out, doing that research. And also, I suppose the next stage then is then, okay, well, testing my knowledge by passing it on to someone else and see what questions they come up with, which should go, oh, yeah, I never thought yeah. about it that way. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, it's it's prior to the the, 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 the teaching, the learning, the uh, uh, and then also during as well. And, and uh, yeah, so it's, that's why it's all aspects. Yeah, I think, no, I totally resonate with everything you've said. And I absolutely love it. So you've just touched on something there then. I absolutely, and this this used to terrify me in the early days, you know, when somebody asked, you, you always have this thing with a live audience, you think, what if someone asks me a question that I don't know the answer to? Now, folks, as a professional trainer, there are ways and techniques to deal with that very professionally and very well, okay? But, but I'm no longer afraid of that. I actually enjoy when somebody asks me a question that I hadn't thought of or I don't know the answer to. Uh, because just for the reasons that you've said there, because you then start thinking, wow, I never thought of that. Uh, and sometimes it, the thing is, okay, as a group, let's now try and tackle this question, you know, that it, the immediate reaction is we don't have an answer to. Um, and I, I quite enjoy doing that now. Um, but early days, that would be one of the things that would be on a list of reasons why I don't want to stand up in front of that audience. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I mean, there's a genuine, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of, you know, this FOMO, fear of missing out. Okay, so that's one aspect yeah. to it. But there's a genuine, obviously, fear of other people's opinions. You know, and, yeah. you know, and it is like this, you know, athletes get I mean, in business. People get we all get it at some level. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, you know, we are, you know, if you a very good example of this, I'm going slightly off topic and I'll bring it back again. 
but is you know in the mornings you know if I'm going to work I go into an office um, you know if I go to my wardrobe and go oh what will I'm going to wear this shirt today because I know it's not about I want to wear that shirt it could be oh I, I know people won't mind if I wear this shirt I, that makes it. so you know so yeah. I blend yeah. in to my background because I'm wearing this shirt. I don't stick out. People aren't going to comment upon it. You know, they're just going to just going to be grey and, and and people accept what I'm wearing. So that's a classic example of fear of other people's opinions. You know, so that's yeah. I'm dressing according to what other people would expect me to wear. Yeah. Now, I think top performing athletes, top performing business people, top performing. You know, and it's, it it takes a while to get to know yourself. And I suppose that's when you're training, Neil, is that something that, um, I mean, we still all have elements of other people's opinions, but is that something now that you think you've started to address, actually, I don't really mind what people think in a large way, um, because I I can turn that around and use it to my advantage. Yeah, I think so. And... uh... But I found I, I'm, I'm a tall bloke, okay? Uh, so I'm six foot, I'm just short of six foot four, okay? And and this went all the way through my school and uh, early career. It was never possible for me to blend in in a room because not so much these days, but, you know, when I was a teenager and in my 20s, I quite often was the tallest person in the room, you know? And... Uh, so yeah, and I, I, I think I was always conscious of my height, and I was always—I uh, don't know what I would, how I would describe it—but I viewed it as much as a disadvantage as an advantage because I was quite a shy person, uh, certainly quite very introverted early on in my business uh, career. Um, but now, I think the big thing for me was. Um, there's lots of stories I can tell as to how I managed to get better at presentation skills. But over a period of time, I kind of decided that I know what I look like. I know what I sound like. Everybody else knows what I look like and what I sound like far better than I do. I've just got to get over myself and just try and, uh, yeah, just try and put that to the side and focus on what's coming out of my mouth and trying to be the best I can be at, if we're talking about training, at delivering a particular subject. And don't get me wrong, I have delivered uh, some horrendous training sessions and some dire presentations. Um, I've also delivered, you know, sometimes you do something and for some unexplainable reason, it's it's just like the total opposite end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And what I always seek to try and do is try and be somewhere in what I would call upper quartile range. Okay? So I never seek to try and pull off the best presentation that I've ever done because that's when that happens, it tends to happen by accident. And it's as much to do with the audience as it's got to do with you. Totally. Um, but I always try and aim to be upper quartile. Uh, now that that is a conversation that myself and my wife Aileen have quite regularly. I will come back after doing a training course and she will say to me, how did it go? And I would say upper quartile. Or now and again, 
am I say, yeah, mediocre. And she knows when I'm saying mediocre, I'm talking about mid-table obscurity. I'm talking about, I could have done that better, you know. And irrespective, the audience might think it was absolutely brilliant mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or they might think it's absolutely rubbish. But my perception would be I've been better and I give myself quite a hard time about that. And I think another big thing, which I think is a take-home point for a lot of people, I've already described myself as being originally quite introverted and quite shy and quite nervous about my height. Um, over the years, I learned how to step out of my comfort zones and put myself into scenarios that I would be dreading before I actually put myself into the scenario itself. And the, the Social Calls book is an excellent example for myself, Keith and Andy. We were so far out of our comfort zone producing that first Social Calls book. We were we went through 18 months of an emotional roller coaster about will we do this? Should we do it? Can we do it? What will people think? Uh, to the point that we had conversations where we almost abandoned the project because it was so far out of all of our comfort zones. Yeah. But then we did it. And then what do you learn? You put yourself in that uncomfortable situation where you don't know what the reaction's going to be. And yes, now and again, you get a negative reaction. But if if 90% of the reaction is whatever you're doing is good, then that shows you made the good decision and you're doing the right thing. So don't focus. Don't focus on people that try to stop you doing something. Um, focus, focus on the people that are going to benefit through you doing it. Because if somebody like myself always focused on the one or the two people that said, I don't think you should be doing this, whatever it is, then personally, I would have never set up Echoes, none of those books would have been done, Batability Club would have been done, the Bats the Millennium Link project would never have been done. Uh, I had a girlfriend at the time when I went on that first Bat course that probably told me, I don't think you should go on that course, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so yeah, that's, that's... don't, yeah, comfort zone. Don't be afraid to go beyond your comfort zone, wherever that line lies. I think that is, I think I've learned massively. Uh, that's, yeah. that's great advice. I mean, it's it's yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know what you've what you just um, what I've picked out there is that uh, you know obviously that um, you know you didn't you almost didn't write that book, and imagine as you say in yeah. the other aspect to it, why you yeah. did it is because you care. So why, you know, you care about actually getting a message out. So you care about, I mean, you respect, it's, it's also self-care, isn't it? You know, you know, you have the knowledge and understanding, but it, what holds people back is, okay, it's that, again, uh, come back, yeah, the fear of what other people think. And yes, it's, yeah. it's damaging when we hear someone saying, oh, you're rubbish, which, or I don't, I disagree with you, because that really jars, doesn't it? But it's overcoming, yeah. okay, well, you may disagree with me, but I can tell, I can find you know 99 or maybe 80% more people who do agree with me or yeah. are on the same page so it's we always focus upon the negative and actually not the large positives that come from what you do yeah so i think something and this is something i've used quite a lot when i've been doing one-to-one -one coaching with people 
And I didn't come up with this myself. Okay, this came via uh, some management guru that I would have read in a book somewhere years ago. But if you take the social calls book as an example, um, myself, Keith and Andy would have been having conversations and should we continue, should we stop this kind of stuff? And on the one hand, the three of us said, if the only three people that like this book are just the three of us, that's good enough. Because the reason we did the book was because nobody else was going to do it. And we were really interested in that specific subject. But the one thing that regularly comes up when I'm doing one-to-one coaching with people, when we are talking about comfort zone type issues, I say to them, right, ignoring how you feel about what you're maybe about to do, I want you to fast forward a year from now or 10 years from now and imagine yourself having not done it, you know? And I want you to ask yourself, you know, the you five years from now, I want you to ask yourself, do you wonder what would have happened if you'd done it? Do you regret not having done it? And if the answer to that question is 100% yes, I wish I'd bloody well done whatever it was, then the answer to today's question is do it. You know, don't go forward five years in time and say, I wonder what would have happened if I'd written that social calls book as an example, you know. If it's that important and you're that passionate about it, uh, don't let no, the minority of negativity stop you doing it. Don't get me wrong. If there is a huge wave of negativity and a hundred out of a hundred one people tell you something's a bad idea, it's probably a bad idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, that's fantastic. Uh, in terms of um, uh, okay, so we, we touched upon it there about you, know, you mentioned about batability. Um, now, um, I'm going to jump, if, if I may, to obviously you now offer this course. This is a, um, with the growth of batability, you, know, you now offer a course like with a certificate of bat acoustic analysis. Um, obviously, I, I mean, we've had people on this course and absolutely loved it, you know, so in terms of, you know, it helps them, their self confidence and what, the, you know, their, their ability themselves, you know, as, you, as, you, as it is on your website, it demonstrates to me as an employer that a certain level as well. So, I mean, just those are, those are two things I've picked out, but why, where, yeah, can you run from the process of how and why you set up, you know, this particular training course, this bat acoustic analysis course, uh, and also, I suppose, the future sort of, um, yeah, the, the, the future of it as well? Yeah, okay. So th- this this idea had been bubbling uh, along with me for some time, yeah. Uh, and I was doing lots and lots over the years, lots and lots of uh, business-to-business, uh, face-to-face training courses purely just on echolocation or uh, echolocation slash social calls. Uh, Echoes did lots of courses on the subject. Um, well advertised. Uh, BATML, uh, when we did courses in BATML before Echoes, we had aspects of that course that was purely echolocation. Uh, that was being in the you know late 1990s. Um, and before BATML, I remember doing uh, delivering courses on uh, using hitch down bat detectors and stuff like that. Um, so 
And obviously my background and my passion, um, you know, through the social calls books and that training experience, you know, I've got a fair amount of experience when it comes to acoustic analysis of bat-related sound. And I prefer to use the word experienced as opposed to the word expert, because I don't truly believe that anybody is an expert on bat-related sound. We're all at different levels of experience, but we've still got a lot more to learn. And until we know everything, no one can call themselves an expert. So I had this experience and we had this business idea. Batability Club had been going for a while at that point. Within Batability Club, there'd been quite a lot of webinars and quite a lot of material and different aspects of acoustic analysis. Um, and, and just had this idea for thinking, you know, there could be something here where people need to demonstrate to themselves or to clients or to a prospective or current employer what level they were at. And I went through the whole comfort zone thing, right? For for many months, I would have gone, I know I can do this, but now the question is, should I do it? Okay, it's not about can, it's about should I? And the answer to that question is yes, it's then about timing. And it'd been bugging me for months. And quite honestly, one Saturday morning, and you can track this back on Facebook, I remember vividly it was a Saturday, I just thought, to hell with it. I'm going to put something up on social media and I'm going to see what the reaction is. Okay. Now, as soon as you put something up on social media saying you're going to do something from a business point of view and from a credibility point of view, you have no choice. You have to see it through okay? because you can't just willingly say, I'm going to do this and three months later say, actually, it's too hard. I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, you've kind of got to go through that whole thought process before you get to the first advert. So I put that first advert up on a couple of Facebook pages from memory that Saturday morning and I kind of thought, I'm now going to find out whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. You know, am I going to get one or two likes on this post, which is kind of what I thought would maybe happen, or is it going to generate a lot of interest? And I think by the Sunday tea time, uh, the reaction had been colossal. Okay, and that doesn't mean it was thousands, but it meant that I was hoping for a handful of likes. And I think we were up to hundreds with lots of people commenting and asking questions. And at that point, I thought, that's it, 100% committed now. Uh, I've put the advert up. We've had that reaction. We've now got to build the thing. We've got to build the thing. And that's kind of how it all started. Um, but it'd been formulating for at least six months prior to that moment. Um, but it's it's kind of once you break from the pack uh, and you say what you're going to do, it was a huge step out of my comfort zone. It really was. It was not so much because I didn't feel that I had the knowledge, but it was more down to, well, how are certain people in the sector whom I respect, and again, I won't mention names, but you can imagine who some of these people might be. I don't want to upset these people. I don't want to make out that I'm better than these people because I'm not. No, I'm not better than these people. I'm just somebody that stepped outside of my comfort zone and saw that there was a need for this and put it together. Now, that course, I think, has got something like 15 hours of delegate time 
that was built, yeah, the production time to what you actually see on screen was was slightly greater than one to ten. So for every hour you've seen on that Cobra course screen, there was 10, 11 hours worth of production time. And that didn't include the separate IT team. Uh, that didn't include their production time and the money that we spent externally to get them to build the stuff behind the scenes in order for everything to talk to everything else. So I think people see something like that and go, well, that's just a one hour webinar. But that one hour webinar on that course was 10 hours of work, you know, yeah. uh, more than a day's work to produce. Yeah. Just going on to that, I think you're actually right in terms of, of yeah, people see, like you say, an hour worth of delivery time. And it's a bit like, yeah. um, you know, um, I've, we've just stopped delivering a course actually to um, um, a university. And um, yeah. it, it was down to funding. It was all down to money. It's always down to money. It's not as if we were, we were doing anything of value. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, they've asked us to come back and do, you know, present something. And um, it was a, it was a, it was okay. We're going to give you one hour preparation and two hour delivery, uh, you know, at time. And I'm thinking, yeah, and this is at like forty pounds yeah. an hour. Uh, and if you think forty pounds an hour for a high level, so yeah, I think people don't realise how long it takes to present one hour, two yeah. hours worth of presentations. So yeah, so okay, so uh, yeah. I can well believe it's ten times the amount. Yeah, that's incredible. So yeah. where did you find the time to do that then? Yeah, well. Just did it, and I mean, I run my own business. I manage my own time. Uh, we, uh, myself, and uh, the guy at that point, I wasn't doing the video editing, so I was designing the slides. I, I was scripting it. I was delivering it. I was recording it. It would then go into the editing room, so to speak, and the editing would take so long. Okay, because. Uh, well, look, as you can see from this interview, I've got a tendency to go off on tangents and all this kind of stuff. All of that had to be edited out. Uh, the videos had to be edited with the sound, so it all made sense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but we'll, we we'll, just... We'll keep the tangents yeah. in here on this one, Neil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but it took myself and Aaron, uh, it took us from day one when we started the recording, uh, after we got the IT guys to convince us that they could actually build the platform in such a way that it was going to work that we wanted. Because this wasn't a straight Thinkific lift off their platform, let's do it the Thinkific way. There were things that go on in between the Thinkific and other things that we've built in that course that sit behind the scenes that had to be uh, bespoke designed by uh, IT people. And they scratched their head for a couple of weeks going, we're not sure if we can quite do this, we haven't worked out how to get this bit, which has nothing to do with what you see on screen. Uh, you'll, I'm sure you'll recognise this yourself through what, what you do. But but yeah, we kind of built the course over a three month period. And from memory, and this is from memory, I think the course officially launched around about the first week in April in 2021, I think. We'd been working, you know, and, and we pretty much had finished the course the day before we then stuck the adverts up saying it's now open for booking. We didn't have any of a time lag there. Uh, so yeah, we did it over a period of three, three and a half months, I think, from memory. Uh, we didn't just sit down on Monday and then the course was finished two weeks later mm -hmm. uh, because, well, 
I had other stuff I was doing. I was writing book or books. I had other commitments to batability. Um, Aaron had business commitments. Uh, we're just very much just, uh, right, just, and it's the resilience was a big thing as well. Resilience. It would have been so easy, probably halfway through that, once we appreciated how much work was going into it, I did have moments when I said to myself, this is taking much longer and this is much more complicated and much more expensive than I ever envisaged on day one. Yeah, I thought, I'm used to delivering webinars. No, this is just recording some webinars and sticking it online. Totally different. No. Totally different experience. I think it goes um, back to that caring as well. You know, you're saying about writing that yeah. book, you want to make sure that it's right, that people yeah. find it of, of value, of, of interest. And yes, there's a bit about back, that, back there thinking about, okay, well, do they find it, uh, you know, right as well? So, you know, you always get some criticism. But, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's also, I think you've alluded to this previously as well. It, it's all about the delivery of the presentation. You want, you know, it is information knowledge building up their skills but also delivered in a way that is uh i wouldn't say entertaining but you know it it, 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 it's of engagement it's engaging isn't it as well yeah well well, that's what i seek to do And, and again i think i've got to admit yeah and i think we could probably all say this about ourselves I 100% recognise that I am not everyone's cup of tea, okay? You know, I, I, I totally get that. I, but I, I am just the person I am. I've got the accent that I have. I've got the the mannerisms and the personality or lack of personality dependent upon the situation that I have. And, and I do not pretend for a minute that everyone is going to enjoy the COBA experience. But what I would say, um, the amount of massively positive feedback we have had from well over 100 delegates, and we've got many more than 100 people going through the course, um, the amount of feedback we have had that is just... You know, I wish I could put the stuff up on a website and say, this is what X said and this is what Y said. But as a business, we don't do that. We don't. You will never, or you, it would be extremely unusual for you to see in any battability material uh, us taking quotes from feedback because it's, it's not that it's right or it's wrong. It's just it's not something that we do. Okay. Um, but yeah, and very, very occasionally uh, we have a you know, we have a complaint about uh, this bit of the course could have been slightly better or, um, but the the ratio positive to negative, um, just, you know, I'm just astounded, amazed, appreciative of, I never expected it to be as successful as it's now turned out to be. And on day one, a lot of nervousness was about what happens when really experienced people go through this uh, course and if they tell me they don't like it, then what do I then do? And on day one, well, not on day one, but around about week one or week two, uh, again, without naming names, but one of the well-known people in Western Europe went through the whole course start to finish including the assessment and 
I was really, really thinking, oh my God, I wonder what they're going to think because if they are, they've got the capability of telling me this is rubbish or this bit's rubbish or this bit's not right. And when they came back to me and said it was absolutely brilliant, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, they gave me one or two little bits of feedback of things that of could change slightly, but it wasn't that anything was wrong. It was just from their perspective, it was just that little bit there. You maybe want to reword that sentence, that kind of thing. And at that point, I thought to myself, okay, if somebody at that level is happy, because that's not the level the course is aimed at, but if somebody at that level is happy, then yeah, we could be on to something here that's going to be well received. And that's what's happened. We've had, and again, I'm reluctant to talk about the numbers, but we gave ourselves a target for the first year. Uh, That target got blown out of the water. We gave ourselves a target for the second year. That target got blown out of the water. We now don't have a target for the course because we're just so far beyond target that even if the course stopped tomorrow, it's, you know, the effort that we put into the 160, 150 hours worth of production time, et cetera, et cetera. I am happy that an awful lot of people are better at this subject now than what they were before the subject. Not saying everybody, but I'm happy it's doing what it needs to do. Great, you've got that return of investment. So uh, I just want yeah. to go, I mean, we, I mean, we're just sort of coming towards the end of the time, really. So in yeah. terms of just could, could you, I mean, for, for those who may not have heard about the, this um, this course, you know, what can someone expect from this course? Someone going in, what sort of knowledge do they may need or don't they need? And what is their, you know, what's the outcome, do you think, for the, for the person going through this course? Okay, so I think knowledge you need, you could be a complete beginner and you would be able to follow the course from start to end yeah because we do start off on the basis that uh, a learner knows nothing i wouldn't suggest however that you are a complete beginner i would suggest that you've at least been out with a bat detector and you've looked at some spectrograms and stuff you know you know but but if you know like the smallest amount that there is to know you will not struggle Likewise, you could be a pretty experienced person having done this for years and you would benefit from doing the course as well, perhaps, because there are certain challenges and experiences that we take forward that might question or get you to reassess how you've interpreted things in the past. Mm -hmm. After having produced the course, I myself began to reinterpret some of the things that I thought I knew. (laughs) So so I benefited from the production. Um, What do you expect? It's it's online training. um, you work your way through a series of modules and um, you have the ability to drop me an email at any point and ask me a, a question about anything that you're struggling with or occasionally send me a call that you're not sure about or if there's something you're not sure about in the course content, uh, ask me for further explanation. So there is that one-to-one uh, interface uh, with any of the delegates. So that is there. and. You get to the end of it, uh, you get a course completion certificate, which provided you've completed the course, everybody gets. And if you choose, you can also then go on to uh, what we call an actual assessment. And that assessment is whereby we give you a grade, if you're at a high enough standard, 
to say that you know you're either an A, B, or C grade technician level COBA student. Uh, you don't feel that assessment, uh, but if you don't meet the minimum for a C grade, you basically just get a response that says that well, we haven't been able to give you a grade. But you've still learned the hell of a lot. What do you get out of it? It depends. Uh, it could reinforce your confidence and allow you to appreciate that what you thought you already knew was was accurate. Uh, or at the other end of the spectrum, it can take you through a level of training that you're unlikely to get within a business environment from anybody else, just because, not because they're not capable, but because does somebody have the time to sit down with you for 15 hours? Oh, you know, cradle to grave and explain about acoustics analysis to you. Um, maybe there is somebody that can do that. And if you've got that person, then please don't ignore that offer in addition to the course. But yeah, you're going to end up at the end of it feeling a lot more confident and comfortable about what you do know, feeling a lot more comfortable about seeing when something uh, can't be identified and putting forward the arguments to either a client or a boss who are maybe unreasonably expecting you to identify every species of myotis on a static bat detector output. Uh, it's going to give you more confidence and make you just more professional in how you go about doing uh, analysis type jobs and identifying things. And I don't show you how to identify every back call that you have ever recorded. Uh, what, what we actually show you in that course is how to take it as far as you can and how to then say to yourself, okay, in this instance, we have to let that one go or myotis or nyctalis is as far as we can go, irrespective of what an automated classifier or someone else in your team might be telling you. Okay, so that's, that's wonderful. I'm going to say in a nutshell, yeah, uh, Richard, as you probably appreciated, <laughs> I don't think the words in a nut, nutshell ever apply to any question no, no, I've well, ever answered. <laughs> because that's because, you know, you, you, the course is, you know, it, as you say, I mean, you say, what, what do you get out of it? It's down to the individual what they get out of it. I mean, you can yeah. assume or, uh, you know, surmise what, that, what someone does get out of it. But as you say, everyone may be different. You know, so it may be, as you say, confidence may be actually, um, you know, going from a, a zero base and increasing to a, you know, 10% better than they were at the start of the course. Um, yeah. it, it, it's internal, you know, it's internal sort of um, uh, motivation. And, and it's, such, it's such a big part of what mm. ecological consultancies do. If you think of the amount of effort that's gone in to training people to get bat licenses and things like the earned recognition projects and all this kind of stuff, right? You think of how much, how much people have to go through before they're allowed to go out and handle a bat for argument's sake. But there was never really anything that had a standard or a level for someone doing sound analysis on a consultancy project mm -hmm. or interpreting the results of an automated classifier. There was nothing out there. But that is from a bat worker, from a normal bat worker's perspective uh, in the sector, probably 90% of their field-related work is to do with acoustic interpretation at some level. But there wasn't anything uh, standardised, if you like, across the board that would take everybody to a similar level. Um, yeah. And sometimes you would get the least experienced person in the room 
the employer saying to them, you can do the sound analysis. And they maybe spend half an hour saying, this is what a PIP looks like. If you get anything that doesn't look like this, ask somebody. Yeah. But then they get to the point when they ask somebody, but the people all around them are too busy engrossed in their own deadlines, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. To, uh, now, I'm given an extreme example there. It's extreme. Okay, I know there are many, many businesses, probably the majority of businesses that would go other than that before they would allow anybody near sound analysis. But I'm kind of exaggerating the extreme in order to kind of uh, explain the point I'm making, I suppose. No, no, good, yeah. good, good point. And um, uh, no, I think if you're right, there are, there probably are, there probably are a few, few uh, places out there that do that uh, anyway. So uh, I don't think you're too yeah. far from the mark uh, in any no. occasion. Um, Neil, um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking then with you um, today. Um, now, I asked this on not all guests, but most, you know, quite a few d- sort of our uh, guests here. It's about obviously you've gone through a career. You know, I say you, you you've you've gone through life um, experiences. You know, get those different skills. So, as I thinking about as an ecologist and as someone either starting their career or very early in their career as an ecologist, we can call those ecological consultants if we like. Um, what sort of advi- I mean, say advice or um, um, or, you know, uh, what sort of um, support or uh, yes, I suppose it's advice. Uh, would you give someone starting out in terms of um, you know right at the start of their career, in terms of uh, maybe developing their set, their set of skills, whether they be technical or whether it be sort of uh, um, um, you know other. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think you've opened the door perfectly to me talking about the effect of ecologist book. Um, as someone that's employed many ecological consultants at various levels over the years, uh, the thing that I learned as an employer was that taking people on who already had the technical ability or training people up to get the right technical skills uh, is a relatively easy thing compared to um, getting someone to be organised, good at timekeeping, uh, professional in their approach, effective in their communication, um, answering the phone in the, the proper way, taking notes in the proper way, networking in the proper way, how to behave when they attend business meetings, all this kind of stuff. And for me, not always, but the majority of the time, not just within my own business, but when I've seen people struggling in other businesses, where the struggle normally manifests itself has got nothing to do with the person's knowledge of uh, bats or birds or plants. It's to do with, you know, they're always late or they can't handle deadlines or they've said something inappropriate to a customer or they've written an email to a customer or somebody in the team and if they just read the email back through the eyes of the recipient uh, they maybe wouldn't have they maybe would have appreciated why someone has reacted negatively to an email that was maybe meant in quite a positive way to begin with stuff like this so i think first of all the, the effective colleges book was written in order to give people in our sector some ideas and thoughts and guidance as to how to be uh, a good, valuable employee. And I think also leading on from that, 
Many of us start our careers in ecological consultants as seasonal workers or uh, short-term contracts, that sort of stuff. And there is a very fine balance and you do not want to make yourself a complete pain in the backside by over-egging what I'm about to describe. Okay, there is, there is a balance here. But if you get all of these foundation skills correct, and you do all of that kind of stuff really well, irrespective of your technical abilities, your line manager or the boss of the company is going to very much feel that you're someone that they want in your team. Yeah. Because they've had so many bad experiences with other people. So I used to call it make yourself indispensable. Yeah. And by that, that doesn't mean being the most knowledgeable ornithologist in the room. It's about being, you know, somebody gave me an expression the other day that they took from a, a personal trainer. And the expression was, in the context of business, if you're on if you're on time, yeah, if you're on time for a meeting, you're five minutes late. <laughs> yeah. That now that's not mine. I don't know where that came from. I think that came from the armed forces. It's, it's, okay. It sounds very military to me, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but if you're on time in a business context, you're five minutes late. I think that is something I've learned the last couple of uh, weeks as an expression. But it's stuff like this, yeah. You know, get this stuff right. You don't have to be brilliant at it. You just need to get it right. And by getting these kind of uh, business skills, soft skills, interpersonal skills, by getting these things right, the chances are you're already going to be 25% better than everybody else in the room around you. Yeah? Yeah. That's what's going to differentiate you uh, at that point in your career. And that's what's going to keep differentiating you uh, as you progress through through the different levels. Um, we can all buy a book and read a book and make ourselves a technical expert on something, you know, go on courses, get field experience. All of that will come naturally. But I used to say in my business, you know, I don't care if you're David Attenborough, you know, if you turn up late here, you don't work here. <laughs> and that kind of explains, I suppose, yeah. what I'm trying to say. I think um, it, then, yeah. Well, sorry, sorry to go over. Yeah, I, I no, mean, no, that's okay. Uh, absolutely right. It. I think it, it is. It's literally. It's. It, I suppose you can summarise it by saying it's how you show up. So, uh, yeah, you know. So, yeah. are you in the room? You know, are you in the uh, room? Yeah. Met metaphorically mm -hmm. speaking, mm -hmm. no. Um, and consistency and as well. So you know, you you, you can be you can be early some days, but if you if you if you if you're inconsistently early or inconsistently late, um, that that's not great. There's a thing called the emotional bank account, I think that's what it's called, or it's maybe given a different names. And you see, if you're absolutely fabulous in your workplace and you get all of this stuff right, the day that you make a, an horrendous mistake, the boss, if they're a good boss, they're going to let you off. They're not going to give you a hard time. They're going to recognise that sort of character. Mm -hmm. right? But if you're making mistakes every other day, and then you then make a horrendous mistake, you know, you get yourself in a lot of trouble, you know. So you kind of got this emotional bank account, you know. Um, yeah. You know, 
Fantastic. Great. Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today and uh, I wish you all the best for um, for Batability and the course you deliver. As I say, you know, we've benefited from people being on your course. Um, I, you know, I know that fact and uh, perhaps I, I, yeah, after you've alluded to it, I, 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 I may even take a look at it myself. <laughs> so yeah, we can, we can always learn something clearly, clearly, clearly. We're always, we're, we're not experts. We just need the different levels of experience, as you say. So exactly. Neil, thank you for coming on to the Ecology Academy podcast. And thank you very much for inviting me. I've enjoyed talking to you, Richard. All the very best to you. If you enjoy our show and want to help, then please click on the subscribe button and rate us on your favourite podcast player. As that's how you can inspire ecologists in the making, help retain great talent and provide insights of our industry to a much wider audience of why ecology really does matter. Thank you. And remember, learning is a lifelong endeavour. So stay curious, be adventurous and build bridges for others to cross.